Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. We spend a lot of time talking on this podcast about markets and sectors, different opportunities, concerns presenting themselves in the global economy. But in the long run, investing does not have to be that complicated. And for many investors, the key to success is just picking a strategy and sticking with it. Today, very much by popular demand. And I do mean that because I say at the end of this podcast, we love getting your feedback and requests for different topics and presenters. Peter Thornhill is a former investment professional who has spent decades investing and educating investors about his approach to building wealth. And we've had several requests to get Peter on the podcast. For those who've not had the privilege of hearing him speak before, hopefully this will be a great opportunity. Peter, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. So, Peter, can you tell us a bit about your career in finance? You started working in finance as a professional before you went into the education space. What it taught you being in markets? Well, I sort of tumbled into the industry. Having failed my last year at high school, my initial career began at the ripe age of 18 as an apprentice sewing machine mechanic in a factory. (laughs) However, I crossed that off my bucket list, but um, moved on from there to working for a large insurance company. And then the process just moved on from there. And I think the, the, the biggest influence on me was when my wife and I, shortly after we got married, left on a working holiday overseas, six months in the US, six months in England, six months in Europe and back home. We didn't come home for 18 years. And it was that apprenticeship in the UK that had the biggest influence on me and working in the investment industry in the the UK um, was just, as I say, a wonderful apprenticeship. And that then set me on the path getting headhunted job after job, and I eventually got headhunted back to Australia. Lucky you. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully it was nice to come home, but uh, it's an extraordinary beginning. It it was an extraordinary beginning. And uh, it's interesting, Gemma, because the last time I applied for a job was when I left sort of, I was working for National Mutual in London as a clerk, And I wandered into an employment agency in the Strand in London and got a job as a clerk with a merchant bank in the city of London in 1972. That was the last time I ever applied for a job. Every other job came looking for me. Oh, that's incredible. And for any of us who spent some time in the UK, the idea of walking down the street in the Strand (laughs) into an employment agency, I think... I think when I lived there, that was still a thing. Maybe it's all done online now. And when I say maybe, it's definitely all done online now. Just about, yes. So you had this extraordinary career where your last obligation to apply for a job was in 1972. That's incredible. Since then, you've written a hugely popular book. You've spoken to thousands of investors and potential investors over the years. 
because you have, I'm going to say fairly straightforward strategy. It's by no means the most straightforward I've ever seen, but you have a strategy that works over time. What do you see as the key elements of a successful investment strategy? If I'm starting out, what do I look at? Number one, make money your slave. Don't you become a slave to your money. Outsource to appropriate investment structures and then just leave it to do all the work for you. Just keeping it as simple as possible, directly into shares and just let them do all the hard work for you. And that's basically what the shares are all about. You have people running businesses who are doing all the work and you just sit back and enjoy the benefits of all their very hard work. I love that analogy. I think for most of us, there's many people out there who desperately want to run their own business and there are many of us who have primarily been employees in our lifetimes and have great admiration for people who are able to make a success of running a business. Your strategy focuses on equities. I find this really interesting because in Australia there's 10 million experts telling you about how to make money in property. We tend not to talk about equities as the way to build wealth. Can you tell us more about that, why that's where you focus? Well, because investing in property is not going to take you very far. If you want to make money out of property, the trick is to become a real estate agent. They're the ones driving the Ferraris, the Mercedes and the Lamborghinis. The owners of investment property, I don't see, are getting a a really, really good return. And to be honest, if investing in property was what Australians crack it out to be as the best thing ever, why would anybody ever start a business? Why wouldn't we all just be buying and selling property to one another? So... For me, the productive enterprise comes from the technological, the intellectual and the manufacturing expertise associated with good businesses, providing all the things that we need to live and survive on this planet. So for me, there is only one asset class to invest in, and that is the productive enterprise of other people. Oh, I love that. And there are those who say quite clearly properties and it's not a productive asset, right? It's a social asset. You need it to be able to live somewhere, but it's not productive. It's not creating anything new. When you talk about productive enterprise, and that's a beautiful way of describing what equities should represent, what sort of shares are you looking for? So when you're Going to invest in shares, and the universe has changed, I imagine, a great deal from when you started when I know when I first started investing, ETFs didn't really exist. If you wanted to get a diversified portfolio, you kind of had to build it yourself or pay someone to do it for you. What do you look for when you're building a portfolio of productive enterprises? I'm looking for the industrials. So you've got you know two major sectors in the Australian share market, for example, and that is industrials, resources, well, there's three, industrials, resources, and property. And uh, 
if the, the charts that I have clearly show that industrials at the top of the pile, uh, then resources and then property. And to me, I cannot see the point of adding property, cash and resources to an industrials portfolio to drag it backwards. So it is purely industrials that I am looking for. So this is interesting and there would be a lot of investors who've done extremely well out of investing in resources over the years who might need some convincing of the merits of looking at industrials. What's the appeal? What do you like most about industrials? And are there any specific sectors that appeal to you more than others? No, not really. And, you know, resource companies dig stuff out of the ground, then industrial companies use those resources and add all the value. You know, you dig a few resources up and you then have cochlear make a bionic ear selling for a multiple many times over. We uh, dig iron ore out of the ground and export it, and uh, we then import it, re-import it as a car. We export it about, I don't know, $200 a tonne. We re-imported at $20,000 a tonne as a car. Once upon a time, we used to make cars. We made Holdens at uh, Fisherman's Bend. We made Fords at uh, the factory in uh, Broadmeadows. We've given all that away. We export every, everything, all the raw materials, and then we pay through the nose to re-import it all. So. I want to stay at the pinnacle, which is the manufacturing companies and where all the value add occurs. I think that has great appeal for many people. And although we've made an awful lot of money out of digging things out of the ground, <laughs> it's, uh, it's hard to see that as a particularly sophisticated enterprise, perhaps. So one of the key pillars of your strategy is focusing on income specifically. And I find this really interesting. You've mentioned Cochlear, uh, which is an extraordinary company, right? It's a global leader in its field. It's doing wonderful, wonderful work, but it's not necessarily known as a super high dividend paying company. Talk to us about the focus on income and on dividends over time. Okay, Gemma, you've just hit a key element there. Um, CSL is another Australian um, brilliant winner. And people say to me, oh, yes, but it's, you know, it doesn't pay much income. Look at the low yield. And immediately the hair on the back of my neck stands up. Yield is an abstract number derived from dividing the dividend by the share price. Okay. So it's an abstract number and the fluctuation in the share price or the dividend can therefore alter the yield. So we have this issue, therefore, that people look at a, a company like CSL or Cochlear and say, oh, it doesn't pay much of the way of dividends. The best dividend-paying shares in my portfolio are many of the lowest yielding, 1% or 2%. But you have to look at the gradient of the growth. So if the dividends and the share prices are rising stratospherically, you know, 1% of $1,000 or 
1% of $10,000, 1% of $100,000, 1% of a million dollars, your income is going stratospheric with it. And this whole yield thing has been a pain in the neck for me in particular because people keep looking at the yield as a means of judging the income. But it tells you nothing apart from what the share price and the dividend were at that particular point in time. It's the long-term growth of both capital and income. May give you a low yield, but the growth in the income dollars just keeps going into the stratosphere. The two examples you've given are companies that have absolutely gone into the stratosphere. If anyone's only looked at CSL over the last three years, they probably don't know or haven't seen the long-term story. But if you were in it 10, 15, 20 years ago, you were not too worried about the last three years. That doesn't bother you at all. So when we talk about income and focus on the dividend, are you finding that people who were very much attracted to dividends from equities during this last sort of 10, even really 15 years when we've had cash rates falling and then falling to just ludicrously low levels, starting to go, do you know what, I'm okay now. I would rather take the capital fluctuation issues with equities off the table and go back to a term deposit that suits my risk profile better. Are people switching away from equities now and just heading to term deposits, do you think? Well, I certainly hope not. And I have been doing my damnedest over the last 30, 40 years to get people not to do that. But, you, you know, you're, you're quite right. And one of the saddest things is the media has a huge influence on people's perceptions because your perception is your reality and my perception is my reality. Perceptions enable two people to look at the same thing and see two totally different points of view. And so this chasing a higher yield on a term deposit means in the long term, you are going to screw your income hopelessly. So how do you recommend people look at dividends then and the perceived risk they're taking with equities? If the focus is on the dividend and yet people are having trouble disassociating from the concept of yields for something like CSL, we're going, it's only paying 1%. How exciting can it be? How do you suggest they look through that? First of all, you've got to disconnect from the price. Once you've bought the shares, forget it. You've bought them, okay? But the problem is share prices are shoved in your face every hour of every day. Dividends get no press coverage whatsoever and for most companies only appear twice a year, some companies four times a year. So there's absolutely no media attention attached to the value associated with dividends. It's all price, 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 price. And you know, I'm not surprised that people are frightened of shares. But uh, let me tell you, fear is based on ignorance. Knowledge is power. So let's say I 
hear what you're saying. It makes perfect sense, right? I, I love the idea of building a portfolio that is going to pay really strong dividends over time. I love this stratospheric idea. That sounds awesome. What am I looking for? So we're focusing on industrials. We're focusing on companies that pay a dividend. I trust that we're not looking for companies that don't pay a dividend. We're going to ignore the share price fluctuation. What else am I thinking about when I'm trying to build a portfolio? That's the easiest part of all, Gemma. You don't. You give that task to someone else. So I go to a a company like, for example, Whitefield, a listed investment company. They've just celebrated their 100th anniversary and they invest purely in industrial companies, which leaves me free to get on with the things that really matter in my life, my career, my family and my friends. They do all the sweat and I have all the fun. This has come out of my experience in England working in the industry. There's a listed investment company in England. It's only been going for 162 years. And it's just celebrated its 56th consecutive year of dividend increase. What more do I need to know? Oh, that's such a fabulous example. And I'm sure there will be people frantically Googling uh, UK listed investment companies that have 56 consecutive years of increased dividends. When I do think about what else people want to know, I can absolutely guarantee you that our investors would be asking what you pay for someone to manage a listed investment company for you. They worry about fees, for example. And in Australia, they worry very much about discounts to NTA. So for anyone who's unfamiliar with listed investment companies, it's not like an ETF where you're effectively paying for the value of the underlying assets. You're buying a share in a company and the value of the underlying assets might be quite different. And there's been an issue in the Australian market for a while where some of them have been priced on market way less than the underlying assets. And you keep hoping that they're going to kind of converge at some point, but hasn't been happening. What do you say to people who worry about those sorts of things? Forget it. Just get in. The ETFs just it just amazes me. The ETFs are the old managed funds. All they've done is call them an ETF. They still have all the issues associated with the old unit trust, trust structure, where all profits, whether from capital gains or income, on the 30th of June, all of that must be distributed to the unit holders. With a listed investment company, the company does not have to distribute all of its profits, which means that they can smooth their dividend stream by, like any sensible business, running retained profits on their balance sheet and using those retained profits to smooth the dividend stream, which is why something like uh, the listed investment company in England can have a smooth dividend stream for 56 years and why Sol Pattinson and others can have smooth dividend streams. An ETF can't do that. And I've got some classic examples of the trust structure absolutely screwing things up. 
um, one of the fund managers I worked with, um, he left the companies that, that we were working together and he set up his own and he launched a, a unit trust and uh, as a sort of friendly activity, I took a stake in his new managed fund. The dividends I was receiving were running at around sort of 800, 900, 1,000, and so on. And then all of a sudden, one of the dividends I received was $11,000. That was predominantly my capital being paid back to me as a result of some uh, buying and selling of shares, trading of shares and creating realised gains. Whew. That gave me a little bit of a, a sweat. Then, a year and a half later, I got another dividend for $17,000. I was getting my capital paid back to me as, quote, income, watching my, my the price of my shares, units, going down, 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 and it was all taxable in my hands. A listed investment company does not have that issue. And interestingly, I noticed that um, in the recent past, two uh, ETFs, a Vanguard and another uh, ETF, both paid out large amounts as a result of hedging gains. So the ETF structure, being the old unit trust structure, I wouldn't touch with a barge pole because the coming and going of the uh, income and the, the size of the fund and the dealing costs associated. If you have an ETF where a lot of people are selling, 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 the fund manager has to start unloading some of the portfolio to cover the redemptions. You know, calling a unit trust an ETF hasn't made it a lifesaver for anybody. So no, I'm happy with the old fashioned listed investment companies where they can smooth the income stream and leave me to sit back and plan my next holiday. I think we all love the idea of a portfolio that allows us to plan our next holiday. Uh, so what sort of time frame does this strategy require? You talk about focusing on income, but really there's clearly a strong underlying growth in that portfolio. It's not the focus, but it's happening there. If I'm in my 50s or in my 60s and I'm afraid I've missed the boat to make this really work because I'm concerned about capital fluctuations, what are your thoughts for that sort of person? Number one, forget capital fluctuations. That's of no consequence to anybody. It is the management of Whitefield or Sol Pattinson's or VK or any of these other listed investment companies, it's their responsibility. It's not yours. You just sit back and enjoy. This, the, you know, the focusing on prices is just a totally useless distraction. It's the income, and if that is stable and growing over the long term, that's all you have to worry about. Is there a minimum time frame that people should be keeping in mind? Do you think there's sort of, you know, you need a minimum of five, ten years? Is there anything that people need to be conscious of when they start this? Um, yes, the minimum is your lifetime. If you're just investing 
and then you're going to sell down, then why, why are you bothering? Because you're only going to be fretting about, you know, oh, well, when, when, have I, when I have to sell, you know, what, what, what will the price be? You know, forget it. You invest and it's there for the long term and beyond. There are many people who will need to draw down perhaps in retirement. Certainly if you're the government, you would prefer people draw down on their capital in retirement rather than hoarding it, particularly if it's in super and it's treated concessionally from a tax perspective. Still works for those guys? Yep, still works. And with the superannuation system in this country, which is a disgrace, um, you are forced to withdraw more and more as you get older and older. And uh, unfortunately, my wife and I will be confronted by that. So as we are forced to withdraw more and more and more, we will be forced to sell down the shares. Okay, I accept that. And what I will do is I will sell the shares and when, as soon as the money's come out, I will buy them back again outside super and they will be in our names and in appropriate structures to ensure that the what we have established, and, it, and it's not there just for us, it's for the next generation and also philanthropic reasons. We want to give back to society some of what we have enjoyed ourselves and we want to be able to leave money to causes that we feel strongly about. It's a, it's a wonderful aspiration to build the kind of wealth and the kind of portfolio that allows you to do that, to be able to make those contributions. I think a lot of people have a goal in mind to get to that point where they go, right, that's enough. That's more than enough for me. It's more than enough for my children. And I want to be able to do more, uh, sort of more broadly with my wealth once I get to that point. For younger people, they're not in that situation yet. And I think anyone who's taken out a mortgage in the last few years, they're not yet in a position to think about those things and they're worried about paying off debt. But we get queries from people all the time saying, I'm really worried about paying off my mortgage, I'm trying to pay off debt, but I also want to build wealth. How is it even possible to achieve both those goals or at least work toward both those goals at the same time? Do you have thoughts about how people uh, prioritise debt versus building wealth? Yes. What my wife and I did was once we had established a a reasonable percentage, you know, so we may have put it paid, a, had a 30% deposit for the property. And as we paid it down, we owned 40% and 50% and so on. And so here I've got all this money sitting in the property doing nothing. So I went to my bank and I said, I'd like a second home loan. Oh, really? Anyway, what I did was I organised another loan and I used that to buy shares. The interest on that loan for investment purposes is fully tax deductible. My mortgage is not tax deductible. And the dividends that I received, plus the franking credits, I would then add as additional contributions to the mortgage which meant that I was paying the mortgage down faster, which meant that I could afford to borrow more to buy more shares, which paid even more dividends. So with the dividends effectively being reinvested by going around in that circle, I was getting double compounding because the dividends were growing organically and I was reinvesting those dividends. 
and you could wipe out. In fact, my eldest son, I put him on that path. They bought a modest house that they could afford with a decent deposit and they started with the share shares and then recycling the dividends and they got rid of their mortgage in 10 years. This is a really impressive strategy and people, it was frequently used when I worked in financial planning circles, may not be so frequently used now, I'm not sure. We always referred to it as debt recycling. Is that what you would have called it? Well, it was dividend recycling, yeah. as I, I called it. But yeah. yeah. But what, yeah, you what you were doing was using that cash flow to wipe out this uh, this non-tax deductible mortgage. So, for anyone who's not come across this strategy and does have debt, you've obviously got to ensure you take the appropriate steps to get it done correctly. You don't want to create two non-deductible loans or anything like that. Mm. Uh, you've got to make sure you get your structure right and talk to your accountant. But yeah. it's absolutely one worth looking at. Yeah. And the other thing, Gemma, that strikes me, uh, being as old as I am, I'm starting to sound like grandfather, but with people today, they want to have a lifestyle day one that it took my wife and I a lifetime to achieve. And the cost to them is just huge. No new cars. In the early years, my wife and I could not afford to holiday, didn't holiday abroad. We worked hard, we saved, and it all comes together. But having it all day one, it's not on. And also now I find we enjoy life far more by not owning all the good stuff. We don't want a harborside property overlooking or something overlooking the sea at Bondi. So a modest apartment and you rent the lifestyle. I drive a 2005 Toyota Corolla, but boy, you should see what I hire. On one of our holidays in the UK, I had this gorgeous 1966 British Racing Green E-Type Jaguar. We spent a week touring the gardens of Devon and Cornwall in this E-Type Jag, and at the end of it, I handed the keys back. So rent lifestyle, don't own it, is uh, one of the steps in enjoying as much as you can at a reasonable price. I absolutely love that. I think there'd be so many people going, my goal in life is to rent an E-type tag, British Racing Green or otherwise. That sounds incredible. It's, um, it's an extraordinary situation. I will say I think there's many people... Uh, particularly older generations who feel like you do, because one of the things that has offended my mother most in life was when a friend of mine, and this was maybe two decades ago, walked into my parents' house and went, oh, yeah, no, this is exactly what we're planning to get. <laughs> my mum was like, this took me many, many, many decades, and it is our dream home after our first starter home, which was a box. Uh, you know, we've, we've worked so hard for this, and you're like 26 and you want you want what we have. It's, uh, my mother was beside herself, still talks about it. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not surprised. Um, I still am dismayed. It's all about, you know, look at me and... That is a very, very expensive way of living life. It comes at a price, doesn't it? Oh, a huge price. And as I say, you know, what Frida and I can enjoy today, 
is all due to the fact that we that we rent the lifestyle. We I don't want to own it. So there are probably many more convenient ways to rent as well now. You know, there's so many different ways you can access extraordinary things thanks to apps and the internet and so on that otherwise would have been completely out of reach. Airbnb is a great example where you can go and stay in incredible places that mm. would otherwise not have been available. Yeah, talking about renting, Australia's a disgrace in terms of the, the rental system here. Most of Europe, you have long-term residential leaseholds rather than the holiday lets that exist in this country. And it makes it extremely tough for a younger generation. But that's another issue altogether. Yeah, it is. It's pretty tough for young people these days. But we hope very much that some of the strategies that you've been talking about give people an opportunity to to always talk about getting a, a foot on the ladder for property but there is getting a foot on the ladder for the equity market. And if you happen to be that person who bought CSL 23 years ago, uh, that's quite a ladder, right? You can go a really long way. I have one last question for you. Uh, it's quite specific relating to equities, but one that I do know many people will be thinking about, particularly if they've been around for a little while, where we're focusing on dividends we look at those dividends, they go, they're fantastic. This company's been paying really great dividends for a long time. I'm quite keen on the idea of outsourcing. And then that company in particular stops paying dividends or falls off a cliff for one reason or another. And then the share price falls as well. So you don't, even though we're not paying attention to share prices, I know, but you can't sell it and then reinvest in something else at the same price. You are suddenly taking a massive haircut. AMP is the one that comes to mind. It was previously a blue chip company. A lot of investors would have held AMP shares thinking that they'd done extremely well. There was a bank that I won't mention uh, that was willing to pay $20 a share for AMP back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And now if it's over $1.20, you're feeling like an absolute champion. That's a lot of value destruction over time. And the dividends have fallen at the same time. Thoughts on avoiding those situations? Because I imagine that's imperative. Don't buy shares. And I say that because... If you are buying individual shares, I hope you have the ability to analyse the company's accounts, to attend every annual general meeting and vote every year at the AGMs or buy a listed investment company where all that hassle disappears into the hands of a team of analysts and a, a board running that listed investment company at MERs or management expense ratios of about 0 0.13, 0 0.2 perhaps, and been doing it for 100 years and you just sit back and get the dividends and stop wasting your time on something you know nothing about. For someone who had your experience professionally, it's quite a vote of confidence that you're happy to hand over your funds to someone to go, do you know what? I trust you to do as good a job as I would do. And I'm willing to pay fairly modest fee for the privilege. I think a lot of people will take some comfort from that. 
Peter, there's so much more we could cover. We've covered a lot of ground actually, and hopefully people can take some strategies away, but you've been good enough to document your thoughts on how to do this over time. Where do people go to find out more about you and the strategies you've talked about today? Well, I think the way things are going, Gemma, if if you Google my name, you're going to probably find perhaps some other podcasts floating around in the void. Um, but I'm, I've actually got some presentations. I'm doing one in Sydney in a couple of weeks. I'm going doing one in Melbourne uh, again in a couple of weeks. So I guess if you watch the website, um, I'll be alerting people. And I do a seven-hour presentation. So it's a full day on a Sunday. And that's, that's about it. And your book is called... Motivated money, you've invested well compared to what? <laughs> oh, it's a good question. Your it... earlier comments, Gemma, you know, people have done well out of property. My first question is compared to what? It's a, that's fantastic. And so people can go and look up the book. They can yep. come and do workshops and so on, and they can kind of learn a full suite of strategies because it's worth noting, it's not just about investing for dividends. When you throw in things like debt recycling, which is relatively straightforward if you know what you're doing, but for many people, a little bit more complex, there's some amazing ways to build quite extraordinary wealth over time, and they're not that difficult. No, it's, it's true. And once you have the simple strategy in place, just let it do the hard work for you. I think that's the bit that's so appealing for everyone. Peter Thornhill, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Gemma. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We get great feedback. As I said, Peter was a very much requested guest today, and we do take your requests very seriously. We always try to get the people you'd like us to be speaking to. So please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please just email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.